You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 10 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and I have a regular panelist and a brand new regular panelist with me today. Ladies, why don't you introduce yourself? Lisa, you first. Hi, my name is Lisa Cordles. I've been on the show a couple of times, and I used to be a professor at Crown College of Theology, and now I'm currently pursuing a literary career. And um, I'm in the process of being a writer and an author and taking that journey. I am married. I've been married for 14 years. I have three children. I have a 19-year-old, 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And I'm very excited to be talking about this particular topic. Thanks, Lisa. Julie, how about you? Hi, um, I'm Julie Dow. I am currently working with a clinical research organization where I do document archiving, which is a little bit boring and a little bit interesting and very wacky. Um, my background, though, and kind of how I ended up here with these lovely women is uh, I grew up in the Church of Christ. I went to Harding University, which is a very small Christian college in Arkansas, and um, spent some time overseas in China working with house churches, doing things like that, and then met Victoria as a master's student in literature at FSU. So um, I live in Kansas City right now, which is a place that I'm kind of passing through. And I'm also very excited to talk about this today, to talk about faith and television and um, women and prison makeup. Awesome. Thanks, Julie. And uh, we're so glad to have you on our show. So welcome to the Christian Feminist to you as well as to any new listeners. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Um, uh, I work at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. My husband, uh, Michael, and I just moved to Minnetonka, Minnesota. So we're closer to the Twin Cities, which we're really happy about. Um, and I am finishing a dissertation on young adult novel appropriations of Shakespeare. I actually just got word yesterday from my dissertation director that I will officially graduate um, in December. So that's very exciting. So um, intros out of the way. Before we start the show proper, we're going to talk about our first ever listener emails. So first of all, thank you everyone who wrote in uh, to the email address and to our Facebook page. We really, really value your feedback, and we hope you'll keep uh, writing in. So Lisa, tell us about our first email. Okay, and I was asked uh, by our moderator to read the email, so I will do that first. 
Dear Christian Feminists, I'm sending this note by way of the Christian Humanist Podcast email address because I don't see an email address for the Christian Podcast. I chose not to participate in Facebook and would therefore especially appreciate an email option. Anyway, if I can interrupt here, yes. uh, for anyone else who doesn't have our email address, it should be at the end of most shows, but uh, for anyone who doesn't have that, it is christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, well, thanks, Victoria. So cleared up uh, the first part. Uh, anyway, I just want to take a moment to say hello. I've just began listening a few months ago and enjoy the opportunity your show provides to learn more about Christian feminism. As a recently graduated English major from a prominent evangelical university, the perspective you provide is refreshing compared to the reductive gender stereotypes propagated by most of my classmates. That being said, I do have a bit of general criticism to offer. Number one, why do you reference the Bible so infrequently? I appreciate your discussion of authors, philosophers, etc., but it seems to me that scripture should be a central pillar to anything including Christian in its title. Number two. Frankly, I think the show's tone is a bit too serious. Adding some humor would make the show more palatable. Other than these two suggestions, I really like what you're doing. The episode on Frank Schaefer particularly interested me because it offered a more human portrait of Francis Schaefer rather than the demigod evangelicals have made him to be. Sincerely, Shireen uh, Dun Duncombe, and if I messed up your name, Shireen, I'm very sorry. Well, first of all, I just wanted to thank Shireen for all of her compliments and it just really seems like you understand what we're trying to do with this particular podcast and show that Victoria has launched. Um, God bless her. Uh, a lot of times it's like herding cats to get it all organized. So I just uh, want to give that uh, to Victoria that this was her idea and I think it's wonderful that people like yourself are tuning in and are very interested in what we're doing. That makes us very happy. Um, as far as the constructive criticism, um, first of all, Victoria did explain the email issue, so I hope that um, that kind of clears that up because it is important. I agree with you to have that option. Second of all, um, I guess just saying that we reference the Bible so infrequently, um, I feel like we do reference the Bible actually quite a bit, um, so I, just, I respectfully disagree with that. I myself am a theology major as well as um, I have an English degree as well, and I feel like we do. Um, this is a comment, just as an educator at, over the years, I've taught in every level of education. And when I was especially at the collegiate level, doing things more kind of in tune with what we do on our show, it's often a comment that female professors do get when they teach theology. And I guess I've come to this place where I've come to understand that there is not any level that I can ever reach that's going to make everyone happy as far as how often I personally quote scripture. So I think it's one of those things where I, I'm never going to be good enough, you know, on this issue. So I just have to do what I feel called and led to do. Although I do appreciate the comment, and I certainly agree with what you said, that scripture should be the central pillar. Um, I agree with that. I guess I would say I try to make sure that, you know, Christ is my central pillar. And obviously that means being in the word. But um, I do appreciate that you know, that understanding. Okay. Um, and something that I would add to that really quick. Um, I, when I responded to Shireen's email with my own email, I said, um, she's probably a little bit right about that. It's something that we will try to work on. Um, but also that 
we are not a theology show. Um, we are um, kind of a, a hybrid politics and humanities show. Um, so while that is something we'll try to work on, um, because we don't just talk about Christian issues, because we talk about um, literature and art and culture and politics from a Christian perspective, um, we've got some other foci sort of uh, in there as well. Okay, well, thank you. And then the other comment, just quickly, frankly, I think the show's tone is a bit too serious. Adding some humor would make the show more palatable. Um, it's really difficult to be funny for two very simple reasons. Number one, um, we're not a comedic hour. Um, number two, humor is very subjective. And what some people might find too serious other people might be emailing and, and on Facebook saying we're too light sometimes. In fact, I've actually heard that comment on a different show that we did, that we weren't taking it seriously enough. So I think what that means is that some people find us too serious and some people find us too light, is that we're probably right where we're supposed to be. And um, that's all I had on that one. <laughs> thanks, Lisa, and thanks, Shireen, for writing in. Um, here's another email we got uh, from listener Drew Van Lant. Hi, CFP. Thanks so much for your good work on this podcast. I check my iTunes way too frequently to see whether you have a new episode up yet. I've been wondering about what seems to be a certain paradox of intersectionality. As I understand it, intersectionality emphasizes that identity is not essentialistic, but is rather a contingent confluence of factors and overlap of various forces, gender, sexuality, race, class, etc. But paradoxically, in the effort to remind us of differences by destabilizing the norm, sometimes marginalized groups seem to hypothesize uh, themselves as a homogenous othered category, women, the poor, the black community, etc., over against a hypothesized privileged norm, men, patriarchy, the rich, whites, etc. These categories are often employed essentialistically and antagonistically, which to me seems every bit as stereotypical and problematic as the original categories employed by the oppressive regime. Why does a postmodern paradigm, which emphasizes the fluid, malleable, and multifaceted nature of identity, seem to nonetheless end up with such rigid and essentialistic categories once again, or am I misinterpreting the popular level usage of these categories? As a, white, as a white, straight, middle-class male, I'm very concerned about questions of privilege and oppression and my complicity in them. However, I'm puzzled by how the intellectual toolkit developed by third-wave feminism and other postmodern schools of thought, which would seem to offer greater, not less, conceptual nuances, is often employed haphazardly in making the same types of either-or generalizations, which were so often part of the problem in the first place. Uh, any thoughts? Thanks again for... Entertaining and enlightening discussions, Drew Van Lant. Uh, so thanks, Drew, for writing in and for asking what I think is a really, really smart question and also a really relevant question to um, today's topic of discussion. First of all, um, I agree with you, Drew, that um, sort of third wave movements purport to be about intersectionality but um, can can get so caught up in what's uh, what's called identity politics, um, this sort of reductionist, um, you know, women think or black women think or, um, 
this tendency to reduce groups that are supposed to be intersectional um, in terms of having them greater resent, uh, represented in things like news um, or political discussions. So I think you're right about the central conflict there. Um, something that I would suggest is that um, a, a solution, or maybe this isn't really a solution, but a possible solution to this issue is that maybe understanding isn't the goal. Um, when I wrote Drew back uh, in my own email, I mentioned a concept called feminist standpoint epistemology, um, and particularly an essay by um, Lugonis and Spellman from, I think, the late 80s or the early 90s. Um, have we got a theory for you that's about feminist standpoint epistemology? And this essay um, is written in both English and Spanish, but the Spanish is not translated. And it's not translated on purpose because the idea is that privileged women sometimes can't understand not privileged women from their place of privilege. And that that understanding is something that um, if you think you can get past, you're sort of foolish because we're all grounded in our own personal experiences. So um, thanks, Drew, for your great question. Uh, everybody who's interested in that should check out uh, Feminist Standpoint Epistemology. And maybe if it's not uh, breaking copyright laws, I'll see if I can post that essay on our page. So um, now that the emails are taken care of, let's get into the bulk of today's episode. Today we're going to be talking about Orange is the New Black, uh, the Netflix original series, two seasons of which uh, have now aired one last year and one this year. So first, some background and some summary of the show itself. Um, before we talk about the show, it's important to talk about the book that inspired it. Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison, was released in 2010 and tells the story of how Piper Kerman, well-heeled Smith College graduate, got caught up in a drug smuggling ring uh, that she was connected to through the woman she was dating at the time. As a result of this, she spent 13 months in Danbury Women's Federal Correctional Institute in Connecticut. This book is a memoir. Um, it focuses primarily on Kerman's journey to reconciling her multiple intersectional identities, upper middle class, erudite, white woman, and then suddenly she's the kind of criminal element she'd always been discreetly warned against, uh, taught to cross the street against, that kind of thing. So eventually, Kerman, um, through the course of the memoir, learns that neither of those identities are really as simple as she thought they were. Um, also, she develops a lot of really close, really interesting relationships with other women uh, she's in prison with. They become a kind of family for her. They give her a lot of strength in this strange foreign experience. Um, and she attributes these relationships to her desire to engage in the fight for prison reform upon her release. Um, she has done that. She currently serves on the board of the Women's Prison Association and recently testified at a Senate subcommittee hearing regarding the abuses of solitary confinement. This memoir was adapted into the Netflix original series of the same name, as I said, uh, two seasons now, premiered in July 2013, and season two dropped June of this year. 
uh, with season three being ordered before season two even aired. So this show has been a huge hit, not just for Netflix, but also for showrunner Jinji Kohan, who some of you might know from the similarly themed uh, Weeds, which aired on Showtime, in which a suburban mom played by Mary Louise Parker deals marijuana in order to have enough money to raise her kids. Today we're going to talk mostly about Orange is the New Black, the television show, although we will touch on a couple of marked ways the book differs from it. That's a little bit of background about the book and the show, some general stuff. Um, We're going to talk just a little bit now about um, the nature of this show as an ensemble show and some of our favorite characters. Uh, Jinji Cohen, the creator and showrunner, did an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air on NPR where she called Piper a Trojan horse character of sorts. She says that Piper is the vehicle through which we get a window into the lives of the kind of women we don't really hear about a lot on TV. Um, Not just women in prison, but like um, the kind of women in prison who get marginalized um, by general society. Women of color, queer women, poor women, um, women like Rosa who are sick while they're in prison, older women, um, all these women whose stories we don't really get to hear. And it's their stories really, I would argue, more than Piper's story that are the real center, the real sort of emotional heart um, of the show. And one of the ways the show um, gets to enrich not just Piper's story, but the stories of the entire ensemble is through a series of single character flashbacks. Usually in season one, there's one per episode. So we get a chance to get to know lots of different characters. Uh, So now we're going to go around the table and talk a little bit about who our favorite characters are and why. Julie, you go first. Okay. Um, I really love Pusey. She's one of my favorite characters. She seems really genuine and, and, and a really a moral compass in a way that is interesting in the setting of a prison. Um, she's funny and, and happy. And so season two really kills me because there are all these scenes where, where she's kind of treated badly, but I love Pusey and, uh, I've come around to Mendoza a lot. Uh, So tell us a little bit um, about um, who Pusey is as a character and what she does, and also um, explain who Mendoza is a little bit more. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, Pusey, it's unclear to me at least how old she is, how long she's been there, but there's, it's clear that she's been at Litchfield for a while. Um, in her flashback, we get to see that she was an army brat uh, living in Germany. In the scene that we see, uh, she's a lesbian and she has a, a German girlfriend. Um, when her German girlfriend's military father catches them together, he transfers her family back to the States um, so that they can't be together. And... We know that at one point she she brings a gun into what seems like the commissary to shoot her girlfriend's father, um, and her her own father stops her. Um, But she never talks specifically about what she did 
um, if anything else, to be there. Um, and Mendoza is a, a Latin American woman. She had run a convenience store where she um, ran a, a food stamp kind of fraud, and that's why she's in prison. But um, she also has a, a Santeria system at the convenience store in the back. Um, she has an abusive husband who um, who we see in her flashback, and she has children who she has to leave when she gets imprisoned. Um, she runs the kitchen in the second season rather than red. And, uh, she also seems interested in, in, in protecting the people who she's close to, but not in the forceful kind of manipulative way that we see with other characters. Okay. I am going to disappoint Victoria a little bit and I don't have a favorite character. And let me explain why. Um, first of all, when Victoria asked me about us doing the show, I sort of binged watched it on Netflix because I personally don't like women in prison shows. Now, let me explain that. Um, in the past, and I mean the past, like in like the late 70s kind of a thing, there were a lot of these types of shows out. And they are not what I would call good television. And... It's just seemed to me very much um, run by males who were interested in showing female-to-female sexual contact, that sort of thing. So I have to admit I was a little skeptical when I started watching because I'm just – I have never really been a fan. However, Orange is the New Black is certainly the exception to that um, earlier precedented shows that, to me – were just very chauvinistic, very much misogynistic, anything to watch, you know, two women beat each other up and then kiss kind of a thing, you know. And I do think this show is trying to break that mold. So I definitely, certainly applaud that. And I do think that the writers are certainly sharper and they have things to say. Um, And so that's probably the favorite piece for me is all the things that this show does with the issue of identity, which is a huge issue for all women, but Christian women as well. Um, When I used to do public speaking for the Christian Missionary Alliance um, throughout our district for women, the number one issue I was asked to talk about was identity. And I personally feel like this show really tackles that particular issue. Um, it seems like everyone is going through this identity journey. So it is hard to keep track of. Um, But I do like that part of it. That part to me is very, very well done. Um, So I wanted to say that Piper was my favorite character, but I, I hope that they start writing her a little less static, a little less Trojan horse, as you put it, um, Victoria. And maybe that's the arc of her character. I mean, I can't say. Um, Because I haven't seen, like, where – I don't know what the arc is. I don't know where the producers and writers are going with this memoir. But I certainly have enjoyed the journey that Piper is going through with her identity. Um, Well, I think we get her fleshed out a little bit in season two, right, especially with the entrance of a character like Brooke Sozo, um, who Julie called, and I totally agree, um, annoying – 
Um, Sozo. I also agree with that. Just up. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so Sozo is clearly in season two a foil for Piper. Um, we're supposed to see her as kind of like the new Piper in that she is um, green and she doesn't know what prison is about and she um, is kind of classist. Um, also, Sozo is or sees herself as an activist. She's, um, it's revealed later, involved in some facets of the Occupy movement. Um, we're supposed to think of her, at least in the beginning of the season, as not a real activist, as really kind of dewy-eyed and, and kind of silly. Um, and Piper tells her at some point, like, I'm not here to be your friend. We're all just trying to get through this crap. Like, it's terrible for everyone. Don't try to, you know, we're not going to be best friends here. So I I think that Piper does get some development with the introduction of that character. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I I actually think it's, it's kind of a good thing that we, that it's not really Piper's show because, as I said, um, we, we get to hear about all these different kinds of women that I don't think we would get as much of an insight into otherwise. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. I guess I just want more of Piper just a little bit, just a little bit. And maybe and, – and I do agree with you on season two. She is more fleshed out there. Um, and the other thing I, re- I do really like about the show is the backstories. And I don't know if anyone else listening is enjoying that, like how these women ended up in prison, but I'm certainly enjoying that because – a lot of it to me is very realistic. I have a friend who, unfortunately, due to the regulations for prison guards in the state of Minnesota, I cannot say her name on the show, but in prep for the show, I did talk to her, and I did, like, a little interview, and I asked her if she watched the show, and she said yes, that she did, that everybody watches it. In fact, they watch it in prison. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't That's got to be weird. So interesting, and she said there's been lots of really good things that have come out of the show. And I'll talk about that a little bit later when I talk about the guards. Um, And she said one of the things that she finds most realistic, and there are some things that she doesn't find realistic at all, but um, are that a lot of these women are in circumstances at a very early age that leads them down to this path of prison. And she said, you will hear, um, you know, if you talk to the inmates, which of course we do, we do talk to them. Um, because we're with them every day, all the time, you know, there's not much to do but talk. Um, And she's like, you will hear, you know, and in their files, you will hear that it almost seems like many, many, many of the women that she encounters never really had a chance. And she's also done time in um, the juvenile center that we have here in Minnesota, centers we have here in Minnesota as well. And she goes, we call them JVC graduates because they start out over here, And they end up over in, you know, they call it adult prison. So you basically graduated from kiddie prison to adult prison. And so I asked her if she thought that the background stories for the girls on the show were realistic. And she said, yeah, for most of them. She did say that um, certainly there is some sympathy for somebody getting into that situation. But um, she also said she, she wishes there was a little more accountability. And I was like, in the show or in your job? And she said both. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and so I just wanted to share that. Thanks. Yeah, um, that is that is really interesting. I know that a lot of people, there have been a lot of articles written by ex-cons um, saying about how the show is realistic or in more cases not realistic. But it's interesting to think about prisoners 
actually doing time and watching the show while they're doing time. That must be such a surreal um, experience for them. They enjoy it because they see themselves in some of the characters. Um, but they also like to point out the things that just would never happen. That's like, their, that's their favorite thing to do. My friend told me that of, of course it's to point that. out, okay, that's never, that's never going to happen. That's never happened. Those you know, things like that. So, okay. Uh, my favorite characters, um, I'm going to save my favorite, favorite character for a bit later. Um, Sophia Bursette, who I'm going to talk about in depth, um, once we get to sort of my reading section of the show. Um, but since Julie talked about Poussey, I want to talk about my second favorite character, who is uh, Poussey's best friend, Tasty. Um, and I, I really just love the Poussey-Tasty relationship. Um, I can really relate to the kind of friendship that they have. I guess I would be m- more the Poussey in the relationship than the Tasty, because Poussey is kind of... Um, as Julie said, sort of the counselor, um, the kind of moral compass. And Tasty is um, really funny and off the wall and always cracking jokes. Um, But their relationship is so warm and engaging. Um, They work in the library, um, which would be if I were ever to find myself uh, in prison for one reason or another, I think that would be the job that I would want. Um, And they support each other. Um, they support each other in a really kind of complex way. Um, Poussey is a lesbian and Tasty is not. And Poussey obviously has um, some romantic feelings for Tasty that Tasty knows she is not going to reciprocate with. But still they're friends and still they understand each other and still they comfort each other. Um, and I just I really like the sort of depth and complexity of their relationship. And I also like, um, like Lisa was saying, we see how um, Tasty as a child becomes Tasty as an adult and the sort of patterns and decisions that repeat themselves that um, that get her into prison and also eventually get her out and back into prison. Um, in season one, she's released and she comes back very quickly because um, – because really, that's one of the ways in which the system is broken, because she doesn't really have stability outside like she has stability in prison. Um, and, and that's one of the sort of first big criticisms of the prison system that we get on the show, too, um, which is really interesting. I'd like so, to, do you mind if I add to that just a second? Go ahead. Um, that is something I think I, I briefly mentioned when I spoke to my friend in prep for the show. And she said, you know, that is probably the most broken piece of our system. Like, people will get out. Um, and I just want to add one more thing. The majority, and, and I did not know this actually, the majority of people, women in prison is usually dealing with drugs of some sort. And I did not know that. So I thought that was interesting, at least in her circle of the world here in Minnesota. Um, there's usually drugs involved somewhere. So part of a of and then that's in the show as well actually, which I thought was you know very well depicted. But um, she was saying how when they leave prison, there is no support system. They're given a PO, a parole officer, who checks in with them when they have time basically. And if they don't you know reach out to the parole officer and do the like the checks or whatever they're supposed to you know they're supposed to check in so often or whatever. Um, they basically they end up right back where they started because they still have the same friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, family, which is a huge problem she talked about as well, um, who, 
you know, got them on this path toward prison in the first place. And that hasn't changed. Even if they change inside the prison walls, they're being thrown right back into the situation that got them there in the first place. And again, there has to be accountability. I agree with that. But another thing she talks about a lot is, you know, we have people in the JVC, the juvie park, whose parents are across the hall, you know. And so, you ha- you know, there is something to that, that, you know, how much of a chance do they have to change that path? Can they? Yes. But I asked her that. I'm like, how many, like, wonderful testimony stories can you give me? And she's worked there a really long time. She told me less than 10. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> That's a, a real commentary on, to me, what's wrong with the prison system and just also a societal problem, a, a world that's in need of the message of Christ and how that, how the message of Jesus builds better families, better communities. And, you know, part of our community, Christ told us this, are prisoners. You know, we're actually called to visit people in prison. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting that the show does, in my opinion, address the problems in the penal system. So I just wanted to... And and problems that, as you said, we are all complicit in. Something that I think is is really wonderful about the show is it kept making me think back to um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I've talked about my fondness uh, for on this show before, um, in which Christ says, everyone is our neighbor. You have a responsibility to everyone. And I think that that's something that the show really echoes too. I think it really hammers home the idea that, um, that everyone makes bad decisions or to put it in a a more Christian framework, everyone sins. Um, everyone has a problem with particular sins. Um, and you know, just because you're not in prison and someone else is doesn't mean that you're a better person than them, that you're not connected to their plight and their problems. Um, you're not different from them, even if you may be in different life circumstances. So I think that, that um that's one of my favorite parts about the show. And just to give our, our listeners the verse that I was talking about, it is in the book of Matthew. Um, and that's the one I'm where I'm gonna quote it from. And it has to do with um, when Jesus is talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, um, and he talks about the final judgment. And I'll just jump in just to give some scriptural reference to what I was saying. It says, um, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. I'm starting at verse 34. I forgot to say that. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then down to verse 40, I tell you the truth. When when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you are doing it to me. And you might have heard maybe an older version of that verse. Whatsoever you do to the least of these, you are also doing to me. And I do think, you know, Victoria, I'm going to be completely transparent and honest. I don't want to visit people in prison. They scare me. So I'm very challenged by not only the television show, but also this verse. Um, And I have to ask myself, and I was asking myself while I watched the show, what am I doing for the women who are marginalized by society who do end up in prison? And let's face it, if you're in prison, you are part of the marginalized of society. Um, And I did have to kind of address that with myself, that – here I'm watching this show and it's making me uncomfortable. 
how then do I move to a place where I'm living out what the scriptures tell me? And so I, I'm really challenged by that. And I just want the listeners to know I'm still working through that. Like, what does that mean for me? Let's face it. I'm, I'm white. You know, I have my father's Puerto Rican, but when people look at me, they see a white woman. Um, I live in the suburbs, basically. I mean, Waconia is, is nothing a suburb. And I don't have interactions with prisoners. I hear about them through friends who work in the penal system. And that's pretty much it. And so I'm very challenged not only by the show, but this verse. Great. Thank you. Uh, that's something I think we all need to need to think about deeper. And also, that is an excellent segue into the show's treatment of its Christian characters. Julie, tell us more about that. Okay. Well, first of all, I'll say that this can be by no means um, an extensive portrayal of that because there's a lot going on. But um, I think that first I'll talk a little bit about Pensatucky. Um, I'll talk a little bit about Sister Ingalls. And then um, I have a few uh, passages from an article that was actually, the article was published right before season two was released. And I think that there's a lot of value in that because it hinges on the problems the author saw in season one, some of which I think are resolved in season two, um, called Orange is the New Black and the difficulty of portraying prison religion. Um, so first of all, Pensatucky um, is a character that we, we meet her and her kind of her entourage, these two girls who, who spend time with her. Um, they call her Pensatucky, right? Because she, she is from the Pennsylvania, Kentucky kind of uh, area, and she exudes a low-income, drug-addled kind of uh, stereotype. She's long, stringy hair. She has just really unfortunate teeth. And when we meet her, she kind of embodies two different identities. And I think one of them is that, I kind of hasten to use this term, but that, that white trash aesthetic that we see um, with users of crystal methamphetamine and other drugs like that. But we also get a glimpse of a fundamentalist Christian, um, really aggressively um, politically conservative and legalistic um, and, you know, throughout season one, we get to know her and, and most of what she does is kind of cherry pick verses and spout out, um, judgment. She, she really doesn't like Piper and they have a lot of negative interactions, but, um, we get a sense of vengeance from her character, um, that really culminates in, in this scene at, at the, in the final episode of season one that um, where she comes out into the yard, Piper is there and she says, I got God by my side and he told me that you ain't worth nothing. God loves me. He don't love you. So I think it's time that you die. And the weapon that she has is a cross shaped wooden shiv 
Um, I think that that scene speaks a lot to what we're supposed to take from Pensatucky in season one, that she embodies a lot of the, the judgment and the punishment that is often reflected in the media for mainstream Christianity. Um, she also has a, a Bible study wherein she heals fellow prisoners. A lot of those are just the, the, the people who are her kind of her followers. And when she asks them if they've been healed, they, they kind of nod and say, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in her memoir, Piper Kerman collectively calls those women Eminemlets, uh, Eminem like the rapper. Um, and, and she makes connections, as you did, um, um, with that group of people to both uh, methamphetamine addiction and also fundamentalist Christianity, though in the book the tie to Christianity is not as strong or blatant or broadly drawn as it is on the television show. Um, thank you. See, I, I, I do need to read the book. Now I'm very interested in it, Victoria. Um, but so those are some things we learned about her in the first season, and – I think that, for one, it's very difficult to untangle her regional identification from her religious convictions. And the way that they paint those with kind of a broad stroke um, bothered me in the first season. The second season does a lot to untangle that. Um, And we find out that she the way that she ended up kind of where she is now in the prison is that she had gone to get an abortion. And when she went to the abortion clinic, the, uh, the receptionist made um, kind of a, an offhanded comment about her frequency there. She goes outside, she gets a gun, she comes back in, she shoots the receptionist. Um, and before her trial, a group, a pro-life group um, gets her a lawyer to help her to make her what she she calls herself the poster girl for the right to life movement, um, and for me once I once that aspect of her character comes to light, it very much changes what I think is her performing what she has seen and what she thinks Christianity looks like, um, and I guess actually I would like to know if you. If you, if you, both of you think that too, or that she's kind of performing that, or if she really believes it, I'm not convinced that she really believes what she spouts. I I do agree with you that it's mostly a performance. And I think that in a sort of strange way that the, the aspect of performance makes it a more interesting, more nuanced kind of not as stereotypical portrayal of Christianity because she understands, um, because she understands the degree to which she's kind of being co-opted by the system. Um, because Christianity is sort of allowed to have other motivations, not just in that plot, but in the sister Ingalls plot too, which I know you're going to talk about more later. Um, I, I guess it's weird for me to be calling such a negative representation of Christianity kind of progressive and nuanced, but in its way, I think it is. Yeah, I absolutely think 
think that. And I found my, I felt strange when I, when I was kind of sorting through what I thought of, of her character. And when I decided that I thought, yeah, it is a more nuanced version because not only is she a reflection of, of what maybe mainstream culture and what maybe media has told her a Christian looks like, but it's also not questioned by the other prisoners. No one calls her into accountability for being cruel and for being a, a vengeful and vindictive and uh, controlling. And I feel like that's a pretty powerful commentary on on the low the low bar set, you know, by by society for for that kind of person, right? Um, and I do have an interesting quotation, I think that gets to the heart of the, one of the struggles of portraying religion in these scenes. Um, Josh Dubler, an assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester, um, in his book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison, um, talked about two types of religious characters in prisons. Um, the bad man, and he says the murderer and rapist who is faking his fidelity to a god, and the poor man whose belief is seen as a lamentable condition explained away by a lack of freedom and options. Um, with the bad man of religion, it's they can't possibly mean it. But the poor man is they mean it, but they probably shouldn't. Um, and and the author of this article, uh, Zarissa Holdaway, says, Pensatucky, both white trash and a schemer, gets to be both. Um, and I think that that's a good point, that not only are we meant to in some ways not believe her portrayal and her convictions, but also the other prisoners don't think that she should get to have that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, the way that Pennsylvania's sort of economic and regional identities um, sort of lean into or, or play into her Christianity. That's cool. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the other major Christian character, yes. Sister Ingalls? Um, Sister Ingalls is a nun at Litchfield and, from what we understand, she is there due to her activism. Uh, in the first season, as um, another article said, they, they kind of uh, portray her as a grandma, a grandmotherly figure who occasionally reads scripture with other inmates. And I think that some of the first season only gives us that much of Sister Ingalls. Um, but in the second season, we learn more about her. We learn some of her backstory. And we learn that throughout her her time as a nun, she was involved in activism. And, um, and also, we learn that she is no longer a nun. But um, she had been a demonstrator from a young age. Uh, she had written a book that became popular. And that was a part of the rub between her and uh, the church. And one of the moments in her flashback that I find really powerful and interesting and that I think I haven't seen portrayed often 
is this idea, even when she first, um, when she's first a nun, that she struggles to hear Jesus talk to her. She asks um, one of the other sisters, when do, when do I start to hear him? And that kind of struggle, I think, adds depth to a character who could otherwise be um, very shallow and simple. Um, what we learn also about her is that whereas maybe Pensatucky has that judgmental reactionary attitude, Sister Ingalls is friends with a lot of people who, who you don't expect. She is good friends with Sophia and I, and I won't steal your fire because I also love Sophia and I know you're going to talk about her a lot. We see that Sister Ingalls is, doesn't reflect the same kind of judgmental, um, characteristics that Pensatucky seems to, uh, really embody. For instance, in her relationship with Sophia, um, Sister Ingalls, I think many viewers aren't sure what she'll say, what, what Sister Ingalls will say, what kind of advice she will give to a character like Sophia. And instead we see a lot of compassion and we see um, friendship and we see um, kindness in a place that it wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be depicted in that way. Um, in season two, Sister Ingalls gets to be more of an active character and we see her get involved in the hunger strike that Soso uh, begins. She kind of takes it over and I think that calls back to maybe a struggle that she has with pride, which I also think is, is an interesting dimension for a religious character to have, um, that she wants to be in charge and that she wants the the hunger strike to be powerful and you see some of the, the fire from her previous activism and maybe some of the selfishness of her previous activism come to light. And um, I think that the last thing I wanted to say about sister Ingalls, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about her is her sense of self care in the, in the first season um, and the second season in some ways that she takes cornbread for herself Um we don't have this character who is just like always law abiding and always um, respectful and careful and and self-sacrificing to a point that that we sometimes see caricatures of Christian characters being. Um, that's just something that stood out to me about her. Yeah, I love that moment when she steals the cornbread because it makes her in, in addition to being a sort of holy caricature which some of the rest of the characters in the prison clearly see her as you get to see her be um a, a real human being with kind of physical desires there which i think is as you say a, a great dimension of, of a christian character on television uh so now i'm going to talk for a bit about sexuality and queerness and gender identity on the show um and particularly a bit about my favorite character sophia so Orange is the New Black sexuality um, is, 
I think, incredibly nuanced um, for a show about women in prison with, as Lisa has alluded to, all the sort of women in prison genre history behind it. Um, it's very clearly responding to that kind of voyeuristic, um, misogynistic view, and I think responding in a really progressive way Um Sexuality is a continuum on the show. There are women who identify as queer. There are women who identify as lesbian. Um, Big Boo, uh, one character, refers to herself repeatedly as a bull dyke. Uh, so there are lots of different women with lots of different sexualities who are all allowed to um, own those sexualities and all live together. Um, there's also... Lots of um, commentary about other people's sexuality. Um, lots of talk about people being real lesbians versus people being gay for the stay, um, both in the book and on the television show. Though um, all of these types of women are eventually shown to be round characters uh, who get nuance and development. There's also a pretty large amount of nudity on the show as well. Um, some of it is certainly meant to be arousing and sexy and sexual for, I would argue, both straight and gay audiences, which I think is uh, could be said to be progressive in and of itself. Um, but not all of the nudity or sex on the show, I think, is meant to be arousing, which is also interesting. We have lots of scenes of nudity in shower stalls. Uh, there are lots of bathroom stalls with no doors. Uh, there are, because this is set in a prison, lots of strip searches, some of which are preceded over by both male and female guards. And a lot of this nudity, I think, serves to remind us as viewers of the lack of these women's bodily autonomy. Like, their very bodies in some situations don't really belong to them. And that's something that I think most of us don't really have to deal with uh, in our daily lives. That was one of the things that my friend found realistic. Like, your body does belong to the penal system because you've done something to put you in the penal system. And um, I just want to say one more time that this, this person I'm talking about who is a guard for lack of – they don't call themselves that, by the way. They don't like that word. They would say correctional officers. Um has done this for a very long time and she's also just a lover of Jesus and um, she was saying how their bodies really aren't their own because there are searches for contraband and things like that but also for hygienic reasons as well however one of the things that is extremely unrealistic in her opinion is men taking part in um, actual nude, like nude situations where you know, you're going to be touched by someone from the opposite sex. She's like, that's just, that would not happen. <laughs> they might be there, but they wouldn't do any of the actual touching of a female prisoner due to the number of lawsuits and things that would happen if that happened. <laughs> so I just wanted to add that. Sorry, Victoria, go ahead. No, thanks. Um, and I'm sure you're going to talk more about um, sexual relationships and sexual boundaries when you talk about the guards, too. Uh, okay, so while I have framed um, the show's depiction of nudity and sexuality as primarily progressive, not everyone agrees about the level of progressivism here. A recent article on Mike.com titled, The One Thing Preventing Orange is the New Black from Being the Most Feminist Show on Television, argues that its nudity isn't equally distributed, that 
quote, the only featured characters asked to disrobe on Orange is the New Black are those who adhere to our society's rigid and unrealistic definition of female beauty. Regardless of its good intentions, the show sends a tired message to its viewers that only a thin, taut, young female body is worth viewing. Um, do you guys agree with this sentiment? Because I'm not sure I do. Um, I, I know that we see mostly white women naked um, and mostly young women. Um, Pousset, who has a sex scene in season two, um, is is black, but she's young. Um, but we also see V in a fairly extended nude scene in season two. So do you agree with this sentiment? I do think, Victoria, thank you for the actual warning you gave me before I started binge watching because I said, well, is it the kind of show I can have on with the kids there? And Victoria was like, no, because <laughs> I hadn't heard anything about it. And um, obviously there is quite a bit of nudity in this show. Um, I guess I lean somewhere in the middle. I think some of it is very progressive. I think they're doing their very best to – show the incidence of nudity as part of the daily life almost uh, in some level, like you said, you know, with the bathroom and the shower, that sort of thing. Um, but some of it is not what I would call incidental nudity that, you know, anybody would be somewhat naked completing those daily tasks. Am I making sense with that? Um, but I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's gratuitous either, though, you know? So... I think it's a balance that they definitely are trying to strike, without a doubt. And I think it's a tough balance. But overall, I think I would say it's – it's. I'm leaning toward progressive. But it's a tough call. Julie, what about you? Um, you know, I've thought about this aspect of the show a lot. Um, and actually, I think that in, in a lot of ways it's progressive because it's easy to forget how actually narrow mainstream – nudity on television and in films is if you if you just think about which I kind of I did and I talked about this with someone and they thought it was funny that I had thought about it a lot um if you think about the breasts that you see on the show in in sexual situations and otherwise there's a variety of kinds of breasts most of which do not look like breasts you see on Number one, another, you know, like maybe cable show, like True Blood or something like that. Um, you know, they're, they're different shapes and they're different uh, appearances. And I feel like even that aspect says something, you know, is something progressive about the show. Um, I think that, and, and maybe this is a little different, I mentioned it in my intro, but I think that the kinds of makeup the women wear... Um, also speaks to kind of refusing a little bit of that sense of beauty, um, like Flocka and her her kind of goth makeup. So there's a degree to which, even though they're they're disallowed bodily autonomy in some ways, the show gives them more autonomy in other ways. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I don't. I agree that that when you and you kind of make a register in your mind, a lot of those bodies are thin. A lot of those bodies are white. But um, but other characters show um, 
choose ways to to dress themselves in the minor ways that they can kind of have a variety um, in ways that I think are progressive and interesting. And they still get to be interesting characters. They don't always have to be sidekicks. Like Red, her makeup and her hair and her um, demeanor, those are things that main characters don't always get to look like. Right, yeah, that's true. Uh, so, speaking of main characters who look different than other main characters we've seen, I think that's a pretty good segue for me to talk more um, about Sophia. So, I've, I've mentioned queerness and sexuality. Um, now, I'm going to talk more about gender identity. So, Sophia Bursette, um, who I think is, is maybe the most interesting character we've seen on TV, not just on this show, but in the past year or so. I'll, uh, I'll set that bar high. Uh, Sophia Bursette is a trans woman, um, which in itself is huge. We don't see a lot of transgender characters on television. And when we do see them, usually they are um, figures of fear or tragedy. Um, you get um, Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry, played by Hilary Swank, or um, you, there's a, a Lifetime movie about Gwen Araro, um, the Gwen Araro story. Uh, and most recently, um, Jared Leto's turn in Dallas Buyers Club as a trans woman. All of these um, films end with disease and or death. Um, you see trans people um, get AIDS or you see them um, victims of hate crimes and they die. So they sort of exist as a moral lesson and not as a human being. Not so for Sophia. Um, and there's sort of another level of awesome here, because not only is Sophia a trans character, but she is played by Laverne Cox, who is herself an actual trans woman, which is even huger than just trans representation on television. Um, we, we do not see that ever. Um, Laverne Cox first sort of burst onto the national scene in a reality show on VH1 uh, called I Want to Work for Diddy, uh, the title of which is pretty self-explanatory, people competing to be an assistant for uh, Sean Combs P. Diddy. And people fell in love with her on this show, and then she became an actress. So this role um, was actually partly written for her um, to talk about gender issues in prison. Um, so I think it's great. Not that, not only that Sophia is not a moral lesson that she gets to be a human being, but also that we get to see, um, a trans woman helping inform stories about trans women on television. Sophia does get, um, one of the flashbacks I mentioned in season one, episode three, uh, titled Lesbian Request Denied. Um, we see extended flashbacks that tell us that Sophia was a firefighter before she transitioned. Uh, notably, pre-transition Sophia, um, when she is a man, is played by Laverne Cox's twin brother. So that's um, interesting and touching. And that Sophia finances her transition through credit card fraud. This is what lands her in prison. While in prison, she's trying to improve uh, two relationships in her life with her wife and her young son, both of whom are understandably really hurt by the crime she commits. Um, there's one really wonderful, touching moment where Sophia's wife um, comes home 
and sees her um, pre-transition trying on a dress and a wig and uh, and and you assume, you know, that, that she's going to disapprove of her husband acting in this way. But she basically says, you know, uh, you, you look like a teenager. You need to wear real woman's clothes and, and dress age appropriately. And I'm going to show you how. So you get this real, um, wonderful moment of empathy, which I think is, is really good and really touching. Um, and, and also, you know, probably not a lot of people actually would react that way. Um, Sophia has less to do in season two. She becomes, I think, a little stereotypey then. Um, she's sort of, to, to use some kind of tro- uh, trope terms, she's a cross between like a sassy gay friend and a magical Negro. Uh, in season two, she pops up just to give kind of sassy advice. Um, I think she even finger snaps at one point. Um, so this seems a little stereotypy, but um, given Piper Kerman's descriptions of Vanessa, who's Sophia's book counterpart, um, pretty accurate. Here's a little of what she has to say about the first time she meets Vanessa. I soon got my first glimpse of Vanessa, all six feet, four inches of blonde, coffee-colored, balloon-breasted, almost all woman that she was. An admiring crowd of young women had gathered around her, and she lapped up the attention. Vanessa was a full-blown diva. It was as if someone had shot Mariah Carey through a matter disruptor and plunked her down in our midst. Uh, So that's a a pretty interesting uh, description. And before I leave my discussion of Sophia, one quick Laverne Cox anecdote that tells you uh, why I love Laverne Cox. I've completely jumped on her bandwagon and would support her running for president of the entire universe. Uh, So I'm going to link to a video she recorded for the It Gets Better project. And in it, she tells a story about growing up in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, She's picked on. She's marginalized for being uh, a gay man, her self-identification at the time, pre-transition. She says one of her teachers, Miss Ridgeway, has a conference with her mother wherein she warns her mother, if we don't do something soon, your son is going to end up in New Orleans wearing a dress. So Cox uh, tells some more stories from her life, goes on to argue the importance of being your authentic self regardless of other people's opinions. And she ends the video by recounting um, a recent speaking engagement at Tulane University. She's been asked uh, to speak to uh, a student organization there and says, it took over 20 years for Miss Ridgway's prediction to come true, but I finally ended up in New Orleans wearing a dress. So I thought that was amazing. Like she just takes people's low expectations of her and them forcing her into these boxes and totally owns it and says, you know, I am who I am. I'm a human being. I'm complex and you should accept me that way. So that's not only why Laverne Cox is awesome, but why Sophia as a character on my TV is awesome too. Uh, Now to wrap up our reading section, uh, Lisa is going to talk about power dynamics and some of the guards on the show. Okay, and um, for those of you listening, the kind of the reading section, and I know, Victoria, you are putting a link to this article. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and um, it definitely has a lot of swearing in the article, just a, what would you call that, a warning, I guess, (laughs) up front. Um, 
the title of the article that I want to talk about that launches into this conversation about the guards, who are characters obviously on the show as well, are is called Where the F*** Are All the Guards? An ex-con reviews Orange is the New Black. Okay, uh, one, I'm going to read some what I feel are quotable quotes uh, from someone who did serve time uh, in, a, in a somewhat similar situation to some of the women on the show, actually. But I'm not going to get into all that. I'll let you read the article because I just want to get right to one of the issues that I think is really important when it comes to the show's portrayal of the guards. When on a particular episode, uh, I think they're saying how a bunch of girls, um, followers of, uh, I say her name wrong every time, Pensa Tucky, I think. Is that right, Victoria? Yes, Pensatucky. Okay. Pensatucky. All right, working the laundry and they're folding clothes. Well, okay, lots of stuff happens and you see lots of scenes like that. But again, this person who was an ex-con said, all the convicts are gathered like in one place and there's not a damned guard in sight. And that just would not happen. And she uh, talks about the fact that there just doesn't seem to be to her like there are guards anywhere ever. And this, the ex-con in the interview for this article, her quote is as follows. There's a putt-putt golf course near my house with more security than this prison. And I thought that was really interesting um, and something that definitely I thought needed also pointing out. And then another thing uh, that other people have taken issue with as well, just not so rawly and so just sort of on point as this particular um, uh, interviewee uh, from she talks about episode one called Thirsty Bird where Piper is in solitary and she smeared some eggs on the wall as like an art project and uh, the the interviewee says the one thing that drives me nuts about this show show is all the snappy banter and, and she's referring to between the inmates and the guards I understand they have to make the show interesting, but if a guard came in and saw that you had smeared food on the wall, they would have thrown a bucket and scrubber in and not fed you again until you cleaned that up. They certainly wouldn't have allowed you to talk about the food on the wall or wait for you to give this quirky explanation. This is like a scene from Blossom or something where the guard is playing the exasperated dad character. It's like, oh, Piper, what wacky antics have you gotten into now? And I thought that that actually was a pretty valid point. Um, I want to just move into just a little bit of realism as well. Um, the lack of guards and the type of conversations and interactions they're having with the inmates is, according to my sources, pretty unrealistic. As a female correctional officer, one of the last things you would ever want to do is talk enough to any one inmate to give them some sort of manipulation um, over you. And that's one of those things. Remember, you know, like I said earlier, there's nothing to do but talk. So every female correctional officer, at least that I've spoken to who live in this area and work in the penal system in Minnesota, um, they would never have this kind of banter and this kind of back and forth. Um, simply because they would feel they were being manipulated. And that's sad, and that's, you know, I, I guess that's hard to hear maybe for some of our listeners, but that's the reality of the situation. 
And many, many people in prison, this is not a quote from me, it's a quote from an interview that I did. Um, prisoners are master manipulators. Um, it's part of the reason they're in prison. And so talking too much to them or being too friendly and not staying professional is just not gonna not gonna serve you well as a correctional officer, especially a female one. Okay, one more thing, and then I'm gonna wrap wrap up what I'm saying. Um, one of the things that I think is very unrealistic, just again based on my own research experiences and things like that, is this whole idea of the men sort of being this eye candy, the male correctional officers on the show, and just all of those kinds of interactions, you know, sexual and otherwise that have taken place. I'm going to quote from the article again uh, about that. Um, she talks about male guards only being part of her life when they came in with riot gear because that's how the rules are. Um, they don't, in our correctional system, and, I, and this is not just true of Minnesota, when you have male correctional officers working with female prisoners, they would be very much at a distance. Um, just because, again, you're, you know, a prisoner can sue, a prisoner can uh, level charges against someone. And when I was speaking to my dear friend, thank, I thank her for being my little source of information, um, she said, she's like, you have to be very careful. Again, you have to, you know, watch your interactions, even female on female, because somebody could make up a lie about you, and then you're facing it, you know, in an investigation, you know, with, uh, with the warden, with your union, with all these people. So they're very careful with their interactions, even when it's female to female. But when it comes to men interacting with female prisoners, it's so guarded. It's so careful. Like nobody wants to be on the other end of an internal investigation. Um, and that's what, and her husband, by the way, my dear friend, her husband is also a correctional officer and he said the exact same thing. So I do think this article gets to some of the very unrealistic things that occur between the guards as they call them or correctional officers and the inmates. And uh, I do recommend reading it. It's very raw. It's very interesting though. And um, that's about all I had on that, as far as boundaries and that sort of thing. We should say really quickly that there is a major plot about sexual, uh, a major subplot regarding sexual interactions between um, two guards and one female prisoner, uh, Daya and Bennett, and um, Officer Mendez, who's often called Porn Stash because he. Uh, rocks a kind of mustache usually only found in 70s yeah. porn um so that is a central plot we're not talking about it a lot here unfortunately um one more thing i want to say regarding this sort of guards eye candy thing is that piper kerman in her book uh would disagree with what you said lisa um not not the legality part but piper kerman says um and it, because male guards, I guess, weren't around as much as female guards, everybody had crushes on all the male guards any time they saw them, and they did become a, a sort of eye candy kind of I, thing. Let me rephrase. That's I wasn't says. saying they weren't eye candy. I was saying I, what I meant to say, and I'm sorry if I said it wrong. What I meant to say is that 
the idea, I guess I was talking about a male guard getting into a sexual relationship. You're right, and she's right. Um, when men are interacting with female prisoners, yeah, they are definitely sort of the pinups of the prison because there aren't a lot of men around. But I, I guess I'm just basing this on, on, you know, what I've been told, again, is that the idea that uh, a male correctional officer would take part in a sexual relationship with a prisoner, if it does happen, it's very rare. It's just it would be difficult for it even to happen was the response that I got. So, yeah, you're right. They definitely are kind of the, the pinup calendar boys just because they're not around very much. And when they are, they're kind of at a distance, like a movie star you'd see on TV that you would get a crush on because they are distanced from you in a different way than maybe the female guards are. Now, she did say, my, my dear friend, she did say the women will definitely flirt with you, you know, as far as female-female re relationships. She's like, that can be a little more um, assertive uh, on some level. But yeah, I, I would agree with that about the eye candy part. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. Oh, no, that's fine. I just wanted to clarify. Okay, so um, before we get into our final recommendation section, I want to go around the table one more time, real quick lightning round, and ask you to talk about um, a scene, a theme, a character, something we haven't already covered. Julie, you go first. Okay. Um, well, something that I would want to talk about more if we could um, is probably I would probably want to talk about um, clothing and makeup and those kinds of things on the show and what, what they get right and what is kind of impossible because I've read some things about some of some of you know their fashion being impossible but also maybe what kind of um, agency that gives the characters okay so we'll um We'll maybe link to some of those articles about makeup and clothes so our um, so our listeners can yeah. read those. Cool. Uh, Lisa, what did you want to touch on that we haven't mentioned? Um, I, I wish we had more time. It's such an in-depth show, by the way. So for our listeners, if I like really, if there's something else somebody wants to talk about, I'm open to that. There's just so much to talk about with the show. Uh, one of the things I found really interesting was this whole sort of undercurrent that I saw throughout several different episodes and several different characters of the reason they're in prison is because of a man, because they made bad choices with the particular man in their life. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and I would love to dive into that a lot more. Like, is that, is that realistic? Are a lot of people in prison? Okay. Maybe not even a man. Maybe it's their significant other. Maybe it's their girlfriend. Um, but I, I would really be interested to know more about that. Are a lot of women in prison because of something they did, quote unquote, for love or or something that they did to please someone who was abusing them or, you know, things like that? I, I saw that as an undercurrent in the show. And again, as I said earlier, I'm very interested in all the backstories for some reason. I don't know, I'm very drawn to that. Um, and I would really like to see that. You know, like, is what does that what does that look like in uh, the real world type of thing? 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, I think my, my lightning round pick um, is going to sort of combine Julie's emphasis on style and Lisa's emphasis on um, romantic relationships. I, if I had more time, would dig into the character of Morello, who for me was the biggest sort of jaw-dropping revelation in season two. Um, I, I won't, I think it's a really big, even though we've already given a lot of really big spoilers, I won't um, spoil the big bomb that's dropped with that character, except to say um, that she's really unassuming in season one, and she's sort of like the nicest, nice person. Um, we think that she, you know, couldn't have done a whole lot. Um, she seems really, to use a word I don't like to use a lot, normal. Um, and, and our perception of her is, is really broadened in some interesting, really humanizing ways in season two. Um, also, if I can just say, like, Morello's makeup game is so on point. Her makeup is incredible. Her hair is always incredible. She rocks, like, pin-up-style red lipstick that I really love. Uh, I haven't researched this, but I, I would like to maybe get some Morello makeup tips uh, if those exist online. <laughs> so if, uh, if I had my druthers, we would be talking a lot more about Morello. But unfortunately, we can't. Um, we need to, we've already gone on super long on this episode, so let's uh, switch into our final segment, our recommendation segment. Uh, what do you have for us, Lisa? I actually said mine already, um, and I won't say the title of the article again, but I strongly encourage that particular article for reading, because not only does it talk about the show, but it also, Victoria, I know you've already read it as well, it also talks about just that the real side to the story. And I guess my other piece of encouragement, and I know I'm kind of throwing people out there, is just dig into the word. And, you know, just as I was challenged by the show, Julie was challenged by the show, Victoria was challenged by the show. What are we as Christian women with that challenge? And again, one more time, I'm still wrestling with that. I have not worked that out yet. You know, um, what does the word tell us about these women who many would consider the least of our society? What can be done? What is being done? Where do I fit into prison reform? So wherever you're listening to us, I encourage you, you know, whatever state you're hearing us in, what is going on um, at the female prisons in your particular area? And like, what can you do as a Christian woman? And I just, I really encourage people to, to just arm themselves with knowledge and the truth if they can. And then, you know, prayerfully consider what is God calling you to do for these, you know, least lost and last sisters of our society? Thank you, Lisa. That's beautiful. Uh, and I, I hope we all think more about that in the coming weeks. Julie, what's your recommendation? Okay. Um, mine is kind of in two parts, and I'll try to explain it briefly. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe one or both of you already read these people, but um there is a kind of a lady blog called The Toast, and they do a lot of kind of silly pieces. They do a lot of pop culture pieces. They do a lot of humor, but especially at the beginning, um, because one of the the women who runs the blog is named Mallory Ortberg, and her father is um, a pretty a big pastor in California, um, and so the beginning of her post, there were quite a few articles and interviews about faith in in an atmosphere that you normally don't see it. There's a lot of humor. Um, 
one of the other writers for the site often asks the questions that, that she feels like embarrassed that she doesn't know the basics about um, different kinds of Christianity and different um, aspects of faith. So that's one recommendation. And then her sister, I follow both of them on Twitter, and I think that they're interesting and kind of funny. And um, her sister, Laura Ortberg-Turner, writes for the Religion News Service. And I'll um, give Victoria a link for us. But um, she writes about popular culture, but she also writes about her faith. And that's something that I really enjoy and that I like to get a taste of because that's how I interact with pop culture. That's how I interact with television and film and celebrity news and she doesn't treat any of those things as less valuable but she comes through them uh she comes at them with a particularly christian lens that i always think is interesting cool thanks uh i i do read the toast uh sometimes but not very frequently so i will uh i'll follow those links as well my recommendation um, is also kind of two-part in that I'd like to recommend um, both an entire site and a specific article on that site. Um, so I'm recommending uh, a grad school friend of mine, Emily's new feminist humor website, Bathshebas.net. Um, you might, if you listened to our previous episode on the feminist Internet, recognize that Bathshebas is a reference to Jezebel.com. Um, Bathsheba's sort of lampoons Jezebel's particular um, cadence and style in a really funny, interesting way. Specifically, an article on Bathsheba's written by CFP's own Marie Hawes. Uh, the article is entitled, Trans People Relieved to Learn They No Longer Exist, and is a very funny response to a recent resolution by the Southern Baptist Convention that, quote, gender identity is determined by biological sex and not by one's self-perception. So the SBC essentially says that transgender identity is unbiblical and um, that they're going to treat it as such. Um, Marie writes a funny, also compassionate um, critique of this decision that I think you should all check out. So that is it for a very long episode 10. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you want to drop us a line, you can do so at our Facebook page or at our email address, christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. For Julie Dow and Lisa Cordles, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in for our August show in a couple of weeks. We're not sure what it's on yet, but you should tune in anyway. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.